Thank you, everyone, for coming. Welcome to Commonweal, to the new school. I wanted to say, as I encouraged people to bring things to read, I'm going to do a presentation of some of uh, Rich's poems and talk about her, and then afterwards it would be wonderful to have you all share however you would like to, to just uh, either say something about her or to read some of her poems. Adrienne Rich, who died in her home in Santa Cruz some weeks ago, is free at last from decades of bodily pain. For a moment, when I first heard the news of her death, I visualized the antechamber of a celestial palace of literature, where Adrienne stood alone outside the inner sanctum, holding her ground, vigilant and steadfast, like a classical sculpture embodying liberty and justice. Later, when I came across a verse she composed for a friend who was in the throes of late-stage cancer, a poem entitled Victory, I put the two images together. Rich was somebody who knew from experience the relativity of such extravagant concepts, someone who cherished the small human victories that could be won while still battling the ignorant armies clashing by night. Nike is the Greek word for victory, and in her poem, Rich described a Nike statue in a way that recalled the image of her my mind had proposed. The Nike of Samothrace on a staircase, wings in blazing backdraft, said to me, to everyone she met, displaced, amputated, never discount me. Victory, indented in disaster, striding at the head of the stairs. Adrian Rich was at once both a symbol of the eternal verities striding forward and a figure of Parian marble, like the Nike of Samothras, rooted in place. The energy generated by her imagination and her sheer unwillingness to be kept down characterize her life and her finest work. Earlier in the poem Victory, she had written, If you have a sister, I am not she, nor your mother, nor you my daughter, nor are we lovers or any kind of couple, except in the intensive care of poetry and death's master plan. Robert Haas has pointed out, that Rich is not a poet to reconcile us or herself with the idea of death and regeneration. She wrote, I want to go on from here with you, fighting the temptation to make a career of pain. It was this wanting to go on from here that drove her, that fueled the necessary accommodations she learned to make with physical pain. She was a diminutive woman with a deep fire, a restlessness of spirit, and an oracular vision. Though level-headed, she was capable of scathing severity, but ultimately her poetic impulse was to bring you, the reader, into her worldview. This is Adrian Rich reading. There's a place between two stands of trees where the grass grows uphill and the old revolutionary road breaks off into shadows. Near a meeting house abandoned by the persecuted who disappeared into those shadows. I've walked there picking mushrooms at the edge of dread, but don't be fooled. This isn't a Russian poem. This is not somewhere else but here, our country moving closer to its own truth and dread, its own ways of making people disappear. I won't tell you where the place is, the dark mesh of the woods, meeting the unmarked strip of light, ghost-ridden crossroads, leaf-mold paradise. I know already who wants to buy it, sell it, make it disappear. And I won't tell you where it is. So why do I tell you anything? Because you still listen. Because in times like these, to have you listen at all, it's necessary to talk about trees. I started out in the early days of the Cold War, she wrote. 
As young people, we were indoctrinated with the fear of communism and the atom bomb, which, of course, our own government had already used. The first poem in my first book reflects that anxiety and sense of powerlessness. Storm Warnings The glass has been falling all the afternoon, and, knowing better than the instrument what winds are walking overhead, what zone of gray unrest is moving across the land, I leave the book upon a pillowed chair and walk from window to closed window, watching boughs strain against the sky. And think again, as often when the air moves inward towards a silent core of waiting, how with a single purpose time has traveled by secret currents of the undiscerned into this place of polar realm. Whether abroad and whether in the heart alike, come on regardless of prediction. Between foreseeing and averting change lies all the mastery of elements which clocks and weathering glasses cannot alter. Time in the hand is not control of time, nor shattered fragments of an instrument a proof against the wind. The wind will rise. We can only close the shutters. I draw the curtains as the sky goes black and set a match to candles sheathed in glass against the keyhole draft, the insistent whine of weather through unsealed apertures. This is our sole defense against the season. These are the things we have learned to do who live in troubled regions. In a writing career that spans seven decades, Adrian Rich explored history, gender, and human rights with tenacity, courage, and even, at times, with tenderness. She was born in 1929 in Baltimore, where her father, Arnold Rich, was chairman of the Department of Pathology at the Johns Hopkins Medical School. Her mother, born Helen Elizabeth Jones, was a concert pianist and composer until the time she married. Then, as was customary, she abandoned her musical gifts in order to raise her two daughters, Adrienne and Cynthia. The girls had a father who was Jewish and a mother who was a Southern Protestant. All her life, Adrienne retained a surprisingly sweet, soft drawl developed as a child listening to her mother. Adrienne was encouraged to read and write by her father, even pushed. A diligent and hardworking student, she made her way through high school during the Second World War and entered Radcliffe College as, a post-war, Ameri- as post-war America began to recover and then to thrive. Writing became a way of life for her, and though in her long education she never encountered any female professors of literature, she tentatively began to chart her own territory. What kind of beast would turn its life into words? What atonement is this all about? And yet, writing words like these, I'm also living. Is all this close to the wolverine's howl signals, that modulated cantata of the wild? Or when away from you, I try to create you in words, am I simply using you like a river or a war? And how have I used rivers, how have I used wars, to escape writing of the worst thing of all, not the crimes of others, not even our own death, but the failure to want our freedom passionately enough so that blighted elms, sick rivers, massacres would seem mere emblems of that desecration of ourselves. What kind of beast would turn its life into words? What is this atonement all about? These were not questions she felt she could raise in class. In her poem, she gave voice to what otherwise remained unspoken. While still a college senior, in 1951, Rich had her first book of poems awarded a Yale Series Prize (coughs) by no less a poetical master than W.H. Auden. She won a Guggenheim Fellowship and departed for Oxford, but after an Easter break in Florence, she opted not to return to England and instead travel through Italy. Returning to the States, she decided to get married to someone she had known at college, the Harvard economist Alfred Conrad. I married in part because I knew no better way to disconnect from my first family, she said. I wanted what I saw as a full woman's life, whatever was possible. Whatever was possible 
included giving birth to three sons and fostering a domestic life, living for years as a mother and a wife as well as a poet. In 1963, Rich's third collection of poems appeared, Snapshots of a Daughter-in-Law. Breaking away from more conventional poetic forms, this book also represented a considerable shift in subject matter and was full of poems of a far more personal nature. Rich was living then in Boston, indirectly exposed to the shift of poetical consciousness in the zeitgeist, centered around Robert Lowell's poetry workshops, manifesting itself in the dark, troubled poems of writers like Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton. But an influence far closer than Lowell worked on Rich. The experience of motherhood, she maintained, was eventually to radicalize me. Trying to talk with a man. Out in this desert, we are testing bombs. That's why we came here. Sometimes I feel an underground river forcing its way between deformed cliffs, an acute angle of understanding moving itself like a locus of the sun into this condemned scenery. What we've had to give up to get here, whole LP collections, films we starred in playing in the neighborhoods, bakery windows full of dry, chocolate-filled Jewish cookies, the language of love letters, of suicide notes, afternoons on the riverbank pretending to be children. Coming out to this desert, we meant to change. The face of driving among dull green succulents, walking at noon in the ghost town, surrounded by a silence that sounds like the silence of the place, except that it came with us and is familiar, and everything we were saying until now was an effort to blot it out. Coming out here, we're up against it. Out here, I feel more helpless with you than without you. You mention the danger and list the equipment. We talk of people caring for each other in emergencies, laceration, thirst, but you look at me like an emergency. Your dry heat feels like power. Your eyes are stars of a different magnitude. They reflect lights that spell out exit when you get up and pace the floor, talking of the danger as if it were not ourselves, as if we were testing anything else. In 1966, the young family moved to New York City where Alfred began teaching at City College while Adrienne taught at Columbia and Swarthmore. The city and especially the college campuses were pulsing with the energy and excitement of radical ideas. The anti-war movement was growing, civil rights protests were escalating, and what came to be known as the Women's Liberation Movement was somehow adhering into a political entity that could not be ignored. It is good to pause and think about these heady years, which have fossilized under the rubric of the 60s, and to recall how it felt to be living week after week through an unstable seismic shift in a culture, and to watch the world change before one's eyes. The titles of collections she published during these years reveal these concerns. The Will to Change, The Necessities of Life, Leaflets. The exuberance of these times resulted in the most expansive poems of her career. Song. You're wondering if I'm lonely. Okay then, yes, I'm lonely. As a plane rides lonely and level on its radio beam, aiming across the Rockies for the blue-strung aisles of an airfield on the ocean. You want to ask, am I lonely? Well, of course. Lonely as a woman driving across country day after day, leaving behind mile after mile, little towns she might have stopped and lived and died in. Lonely. If I'm lonely, it must be the loneliness of waking first of breathing dawn's first cold breath on the city, of being the one awake in a house wrapped in sleep. If I'm lonely, it's with the rowboat, ice fast on the shore, in the last red light of the year, that knows what it is, that knows it's neither ice, nor mud, nor winter light, but wood, with a gift for burning. As a figure of willful determination and enormous integrity, Rich had her own gift for burning. She tended her embers banked deep down, 
always ready to ignite into flame, to build a passionate fire, to light the dark. She wrote of her own frustration and fury, staking her own tentative claims on independent selfhood. She was frustrated by her marriage and full of guilt about the degree to which motherhood was not sufficiently fulfilling. The idea, spreading like wildfire at the time, of a woman's sovereignty over her own body consumed much of her writing. To think of and for herself, to hungrily accept the responsibility of an independent political being, she championed these ideas on behalf of all the dispossessed and all women. Challenges were continually emerging. Hard-won rights had to be defended. She responded issue by issue. Rape. There is a cop who is both prowler and father. He comes from your block, grew up with your brothers, had certain ideals. You hardly know him in his boots and silver badge on horseback, one hand touching his gun. You hardly know him, but you have to get to know him. He has access to machinery that could kill you. He and his stallion clop like warlords among the trash. His ideals stand in the air, a frozen cloud from between his unsmiling lips. And so, when the time comes, you have to turn to him, the maniac sperm still greasing your thighs, your mind whirling like crazy. You have to confess to him. You are guilty of the crime of having been forced. And you see his blue eyes, the blue eyes of all the family whom you used to know, grow narrow and glisten. His hand types out the details, and he wants them all. But the hysteria in your voice pleases him best. You hardly know him, but now he thinks he knows you. He has taken down your worst moment on a machine and filed it in a file. He knows, or thinks he knows, how much you imagined. He knows, or thinks he knows, what you secretly wanted. He has access to machinery that could get you put away. And if, in the sickening light of the precinct, and if, in the sickening light of the precinct, your details sound like a portrait of your confessor, will you swallow them? Will you deny them? Will you lie your way home? This poem raises what was to be a persistent frustration for Rich, the relationship between the oppressed and the language used to denounce oppression, the quandary of being forced to speak only in the language of the oppressor. In her work and in her life, the boundaries between the personal and the political blurred with an intensity that was potentially both thrilling and dangerous. When Eros entered this equation, it was as if there was no going back. The suppressed lesbian I had been carrying in me since adolescence began to stretch her limbs, she wrote. So much was up for grabs. The rules break like a thermometer. Quicksilver spills across the chartered systems. We're out in a country that has no language. Whatever we do together is pure invention. The maps they gave us were out of date by years. No one's fated or doomed to love anyone. The accidents happen. We're not heroines. They happen in our lives like car crashes, books that change us, neighborhoods we move into and come to love. Tristan und Isolde is scarcely the story. Women at least should know the difference between love and death. No poison cup, no penance. Merely a notion that the tape recorder should have caught some ghost of us. That tape recorder not merely played, but should have listened to us and could instruct those after us. This we were, this is how we tried to love, and these are the forces they had ranged against us, and these are the forces we had ranged within us, within us and against us, against us and within us. 
As with so many marriages in the 1960s, hers constantly fell under the critical surveillance of both spouses and was found wanting. As she became increasingly unyielding in her feminism to the point of militancy, fervently active in her support of the Black Panthers, her marriage fell apart. She and Alfred separated. Her gift for burning had eclipsed all else. The hot flame had consumed and engulfed her family. It had roared too close, too hot. Power. Living in the earth, deposits of our history. Today, a backhoe divulged out of a crumbling flank of earth, one bottle, amber, perfect, a hundred-year-old cure for fever or melancholy, a tonic for living on this earth in the winters of this climate. Today I was reading about Marie Curie. She must have known she suffered from radiation sickness, her body bombarded for years by the elements she had purified. It seems she denied to the end the source of the cataracts on her eyes the cracked and superating skin of her finger ends, till she could no longer hold a test tube or pencil. She died a famous woman, denying her wounds. Denying her wounds came from the same source as her power. In 1970, Alfred left. Within a few months, he was dead, a suicide. The next years were extremely active and productive creatively, but they also saw the onset of the narrowing of her physical energies and her accessibility to the wide world. Rich was struck with a severe case of rheumatoid arthritis. I remember as a teenager in the, the mid-1970s going to her read in New York and being stunned to see her make her way to the microphone, wholly dependent on a walker and the degree to which her small 40-year-old body was incapacitated and physically hobbled. Yet the force of her voice and her unflinching spirit remained incredibly vital. For more than 40 years, she lived with chronic pain. In 1973, the arrival of Diving into the Wreck, a volatile, angry, haunting poem, series of poems, was greeted by critical and popular acclaim. In the title poem, we encounter a hero, a quest, and a buried treasure. The hero in this Mythic trope is a woman. The quest is a critique of what we take for granted, such as the expectation that the hero would be a man. The treasure is knowledge, self-knowledge, that can be attained only by diving in search of it. Diving into the wreck. First, having read the book of myths and loaded the camera and checked the edge of the knife blade, I put on the body armor of black rubber, the absurd flippers, the grave and awkward mask. I'm having to do this not like Cousteau with his assiduous team aboard the sun-flooded schooner, but here alone. There is a ladder. The ladder is always there, hanging innocently close to the side of the schooner. We know what it is for, we who have used it. Otherwise, it's a piece of maritime floss, some sundry equipment. I go down, rung after rung, and still the oxygen immerses me, the blue light, the clear atoms of our human air. I go down. My flippers cripple me. I crawl like an insect down the ladder, and there is no one to tell me when the ocean will begin. First the air is blue, and then it is bluer, and then green, and then black. I am blacking out, and yet my mask is powerful. It pumps my blood with power. The sea is another story. The sea is not a question of power. I have to, to learn alone to turn my body without force in the deep element. And now it is easy to forget what I came for, among so many who have always lived here, swaying their crenellated fans between the reefs, and besides, you breathe differently down here. I came to explore the wreck, the words of purposes, the words of maps. I came to see the damage that was done and the treasures that prevail. I stroke the beam of my lamp slowly along the flank of something more permanent than fish or weed, the thing I came for, 
the wreck and not the story of the wreck, the thing itself and not the myth, the drowned face always staring toward the sun, the evidence of damage worn by salt and sway into this threadbare beauty, the ribs of the disaster curving their assertion among the tentative haunters. This is the place, and I am here, the mermaid whose dark hair streams black, the merman in his armored body. We circle silently about the wreck, we dive into the hold. I am she, I am he, whose drowned face sleeps with open eyes, whose breasts still bear the stress, whose silver, copper, vermeil cargo lies obscurely inside barrels half wedged and left to rot. We are the half-destroyed instruments that once held to a course the water-eaten log, the fouled compass. We are, I am, you are, by cowardice a courage, the one who find our way back to this scene, carrying a knife, a camera, a book of myths in which our names do not appear. Many of you know of my affection for the poetry of Elizabeth Bishop. Bishop and Rich had met socially and admired one another's work from a distance with considerable feeling, but also with skepticism and a dash of disdain on each side. I'd like to digress a little bit here with a comparative study of two poems prompted by the affinities between d diving into the wreck and a poem of Bishop's called At the Fish Houses. Here is Bishop reading her poem. Although it's a cold evening, down by one of the fish houses, an old man sits netting, his net in the gloaming almost invisible, a dark purple-brown, and his shuttle worn and polished. The air smells so strong of codfish it makes one's nose run and one's eyes water. The five fish houses have steeply peaked roofs and narrow cleated gangplanks slant up to storerooms in the gables for the wheelbarrows to be pushed up and down on. All is silver, the heavy surface of the sea swelling slowly as if considering spilling over is opaque, but the silver of the benches, the lobster pots and masts scattered among the wild jagged rocks is of an apparent translucence like the small old buildings with an emerald moss growing on their shoreward walls. The big fish tubs are completely lined with layers of beautiful herring scales, and the wheelbarrows are similarly plastered with creamy, iridescent coats of mail, with small, iridescent flies crawling on them. Up on the little slope behind the houses, set in the sparse, bright sprinkle of grass, is an ancient wooden capstan, cracked, with two long bleached handles and some melancholy stains like dried blood where the ironwork is rusted. The old man accepts a lucky strike. He was a friend of my grandfather. We talk of the decline in the population of codfish and herring while he waits for the herring boat to come in. There are sequins on his vest and on his thumb he has scraped the scales, the principal beauty from unnumbered fish with that black old knife, the blade of which is almost worn away. Down at the water's edge, at the place where they haul up the boats, up the long ramp descending into the water, thin silver tree trunks are laid horizontally across the gray stones, down and down at intervals of four or five feet. Cold, dark, deep, and absolutely clear, element bearable to no mortal, to fish and to seals. One seal particularly I've seen here evening after evening. He was curious about me. He was interested in music. Like me, a believer in total immersion. So I used to sing him Baptist hymns. I also sang A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He stood up in the water and regarded me steadily, moving his head a little. Then he would disappear, then suddenly emerge almost in the same spot with a sort of shrug, as if it were against his better judgment. Cold, dark, 
deep and absolutely clear, the clear, gray, icy water. Back behind us, the dignified tall firs begin, bluish, associating with their shadows. A million Christmas trees stand waiting for Christmas. The water seems suspended above the rounded gray and blue-gray stones. I've seen it over and over, the same sea, the same, slightly, indifferently swinging above the stones, icily free above the stones, above the stones, and then the world. If you should dip your hand in, your wrist would ache immediately. Your bones would begin to ache, and your hand would burn as if the water were a transmutation of fire that feeds on stones and burns with a dark gray flame. If you tasted it, it would first taste bitter, then briny, then surely burn your tongue. It is like what we imagine knowledge to be, dark, salt, clear, moving, utterly free, drawn from the cold, hard mouth of the world, derived from the rocky breasts forever, flowing and drawn. And since our knowledge is historical, flowing and flown. <clears throat> Both of these poems are concerned with knowledge and history and how we go about gaining access to them and what we can do with what is revealed to us. In both, the sea is presented as a medium of pure knowing that is unattainable in the world above. Immersion is the primary metaphor in each poem. Each of these poems represents a journey downward into water. Bishop's persona submerges only cognitively, while the figure in diving into the wreck actually suits up and physically plunges. Bishop's sense of knowledge hovers between the aesthetic and the empirical. Holding back, ambivalent, she straddles a threshold that is her place in the world, rooted on the shore between the land and the sea. Rich is far more aggressive in her stance, hungrier, seeking answers. She doesn't believe that it, the water is bearable only to the seals. She's better prepared to defend herself against what she imagines will be a hostile element. She's not tentative. She's gasping for breath underwater up close to what attracts her. Unlike Bishop, Rich's, Rich forces herself to confront the wreck because she feels there is something to be gained by direct connection. Diving for knowledge becomes a redemptive activity that allows for the reconciliation of truth and beauty, whereas Bishop works to keep these concepts apart, carefully separated. Rich is not satisfied, like Bishop, to imagine what it is like. She wants to see for herself. Bishop's journey is that of an armchair traveler considering the depths, Rich has suited up, gone in, and gotten wet, and is ready to make use of what she has found. Ultimately, Rich is seeking knowledge that can be put to use. Her endeavor is to provide something one can build on, something practical and useful. Bishop was 18 years older than Rich. She was protective of her private life and felt it had no place in her poetry. She grappled with her social as well as her sexual identity, and was for the most part dismissive of poets whose subject was themselves. Rich, writing of her own experience, worked through particulars as a way of attempting to universalize shared experience. After Bishop's death, Rich wrote a tribute to her about the experience of reading Bishop's work. I had felt drawn but also repelled by Bishop's early work. I mean repelled in the sense of having been refused access, seemingly pushed away. In part, my difficulties with her were difficulties in the poetry of Bishop as a young poet finding her own level and her own language. But in part, they were difficulties I brought with me as a still younger woman poet already beginning to question sexual identity looking for a female genealogy, still not yet consciously lesbian. I had not then connected the themes of outsiderhood and marginality in her work, as well as its encodings and obscurities with a lesbian identity. 
I was looking for a clear female tradition. The tradition I was discovering was diffuse, elusive, often cryptic. Yet, especially given the time and the customs of the 1940s and 50s, Bishop's work now seems to me remarkably honest and courageous. It is important to me to know that, through most of her life, Bishop was critically and consciously trying to explore marginality, power, and powerlessness, often in power, often in poetry, of great beauty and sensuous power. Rich noted the themes of marginality, power, and powerlessness as being sublimity expressed in Bishop's work, but these are the very concerns which essentially define the parameters of her own work. In the 80s and 90s, by which time she had long served as a voice and a mentor, she began to write less expressively about herself and more about the world around her, about marginality, power, and powerlessness, not so much from a personal vantage point, but as a poet of witness for others. Here is a map of our country. Here is the sea of indifference glazed with salt. This is the haunted river flowing from brow to groin. We dare not taste its water. This is the desert where missiles are planted like corms. This is the breadbasket of four closed farms. This is the birthplace of the rockabilly boy. This is the cemetery of the poor who died for democracy. This is a battlefield from a 19th century war. The shrine is famous. This is the sea town of myth and story. When the fishing fleets went bankrupt, here is where the jobs were, on the pier, processing frozen fish sticks, hourly wages, and no shares. These are other battlefields, Centralia, Detroit. Here are the forests primeval, the copper, the silver loads. These are the suburbs of acquiescence, silence rising fume-like from the streets. This is the capital of money and dolor, whose spires flare up through air inversions, whose bridges are crumbling, whose children are drifting blind alleys pent between coiled rolls of razor wire. I promised to show you a map, you say, but this is a mural. Then yes, let it be. These are small distinctions. Where do we see it from is the question. Rich became an orator as much as a poet. Listening to her commanding voice reading poems of lament, one could mistake her for a candidate for elected office making a stump speech. In this way, she fulfills Shelley's vision of the poet as the unacknowledged legislator of the world. Yet she never harnessed the politician's twin forces of compromise and expediency. Her heart and soul were too tied up in the sanctity of all she espoused. She resolutely refused to accept the politician's embrace of what she termed disinformation and manufactured distractions. In North America, she declared, poetry has been written off. It is not a mass market product. It doesn't get sold on airport newsstands or in supermarket aisles. It's either too difficult for the average mind or too elite. This might be called the free market critique of poetry. Poetry is either inadequate, even immoral in the face of human suffering, or it's unprofitable, hence useless. Either way, poets are advised to hang our heads and fold our tents. Yet, in fact, throughout the world, transfusions of poetic language can and do quite literally keep bodies and souls together and more. Rich had enormous compassion and a gift for true comradeship. This poem called Soledad, who's written some of the lines in the poem are lifted from George Jackson's book called uh, Soul Brother. Soledad feminine, solitude, loneliness, homesickness, lonely retreat, winter sun in the rose trees, an old Mexican with a white mustache prunes them back, spraying the cut branches with dormant oil, the old paper bag brown adobe walls, 
stretch apart from the rebuilt mission in their own time. It is lonely here, in the curve of the road, winding through vast brown fields, machine engraved in furrows of relentless precision. In the small chapel, Nuestra Señora de la Soledad dwells in her shallow arch, painted on either side with columns. She is in black lace, crisp as cinders from head to foot, alone, solitary, homesick in her lonely retreat. Outside, black olives fall and smash, littering and staining the beaten path. The gravestones of the padres awaits pressing down on the Indian artisans. It is the sixth day of another war. Across the freeway stands another structure from the other side of the mirror. It destroys the logical processes of the mind. A man's thoughts become completely disorganized, madness streaming from every throat, frustrated sounds from the bars, metallic sounds from the walls, the steel trays, iron beds bolted to the wall, the smells, the human waste. To determine how men will behave once they enter prison, it is of first importance to know that prison. From the freeway gun turrets planted like water towers in another garden, outbuildings spaced in winter sun and the concrete mass beyond, who now writes letters deep inside that cave? If my instructor tells me that the world and its affairs are run as well as they possibly can be, that I am governed by wise and judicious men, that I am free and should be happy, and if when I leave the instructor's presence and encounter the exact opposite, if I actually sense or see confusion, war, recession, depression, death, and decay, is it not reasonable that I should become perplexed? From 18 to 28 of his years, a young man schools himself, argues, debates, trains, lectures to himself, teaches himself Swahili, Spanish, learns five new words of English every day, chain smokes, reads, writes letters. In this college of force, he wrestles bitterness, self-hatred, sexual anger, cures his own nature. Seven of these years in solitary, soledad. But the significant feature of the desperate man reveals itself when he meets other desperate men directly or vicariously, and he experiences his first kindness, someone to strain with him, to strain to see him as he strains to see himself, someone to understand, someone to accept the regard, the love that desperation forces into hiding those feelings that find no expression in desperate times, store themselves up in great abundance, ripen, strengthen, and strain the walls of their repository to the utmost. Where the kindred spirit touches this wall, it crumbles. No one responds to kindness. No one is more sensitive to it than the desperate man. During the last two decades of her writing life, some critics found her works overbearing. One critic claimed her work was becoming increasingly cudgel-like. Some were fearful that Rich was in danger of crossing over from poetry into polemic. Literary critic William Logan, himself no stranger to entrenched positions, complained that it is not the politics one objects to, but the banality of expression, the rhythm that becomes rant. One senses in her the wish to integrate the realms of her experience, poetry and politics, art and activism. 
The more she tries to fuse them, however, the more deeply they remain divided. In her work, what is poetry isn't political, and what is political isn't poetry. This observation is valid up to a point. With 25 books of poetry and critical essays, a perceived surfeit of expression results. Some of her poems do feel phlegmatic or insufficiently formed. Her spirit was engaged, but not always fully focused. She sometimes seemed to be writing bulletins from the front rather than a carefully crafted work. As an epigraph to her poem, The Burning of Paper Instead of Children, Rich seems to understand this quandary. She used a quote from her friend, the activist Jesuit priest Daniel Berrigan. It read, I was in danger of verbalizing my moral impulses out of existence. Well, she's out of danger now. Adrian Rich left behind a remarkable legacy of activism, a lived commitment to questioning and revealing the structures of power and how we live within them. This was, as she put it, the deep, deep rock shelf underneath her work, the ground upon which she built a sustaining poetical testimony that honors and encourages the public valuing of the common life. So I hope you all will share with us now some of the poems that you've brought, and um, I'll close with a, another recording when we're ready to end. Thanks. So I have this little book, uh, A Wild Patience Has Taken Me This Far, uh, and I'm going to read a poem that she wrote in 1980 called Rift. And um, my experience of Adrienne Rich is that she was incredibly kind and sympathetic, uh, not polemical at all, but extremely strong-minded and um, with an with a, a extremely curious and critical mind. So I think this, this poem actually speaks to something that you ended with here, so I'll, I'm glad I brought it. Rift. I have in my head some images of you, your face turned awkwardly, from the kiss of greeting, the sparkle of your eyes in the dark car, driving your beautiful fingers, driving your beautiful fingers reaching for a glass of water. Also your lip curling at what displeases you, the sign of closure, the fending off, the clouding over. Politics, you'd say, is an unworthy name for what we're after. What we're after is not that clear to me if politics is an unworthy, unworthy name. When language fails us, when we fail each other, there is no exorcism. The hurt continues. Yes, your scorn turns up the jet of my anger. Yes, I find you overweening, obsessed, and even in your genius, narrow-minded. I could list much more. An absolute loyalty was never in my line, once having left it in my father's house. But as I go on sorting images of you, my hand trembles, and I try to train it not to tremble. I, too, um, am reading from A Wild Patience Has Taken Me This Far. And I'm going to read a poem called Integrity. I was saying to Eric um, that when I bought this book, it cost $4.95. I've had it a very long time. And she was a, um, a person and a poet and a woman and a feminist, uh, an activist who influenced me a lot in my young life. The first woman poet, I, I may have read Edna St. Vincent Millay, but she was the first one who really got me. Um, and there's a phrase in here that I've probably said three or four hundred times in my life, and it's about the spider's genius. And I said it to Michael Lerner when I came here one time, uh, that the spider's genius is to spin and weave in the same action from her own body anywhere, even from a broken web. I'll say it again, but I'll say it in the poem. So integrity. A wild patience has taken me this far. 
as if I had to bring to shore a boat with a spasmodic outdoor outboard motor, old sweaters, nets, spray-mottled books tossed in the prow, some kind of sun burning my shoulder blades, splashing the oarlocks, burning through. Your forearms can get scalded, licked with pain in a sun blotted like unspoken anger behind a casual mist. The length of daylight this far north in this 49th year of my life is critical. The light is critical. Of me. Of this long-dreamed involuntary landing on the arm of an inland sea. The glitter of the shoal depleting into shadow I recognize. The stand of pines, violet black really, green in the old postcard. But really, I have nothing but myself to go by. Nothing stands in the realm of pure necessity except what my hands can hold. Nothing but myself, myself. After so long, this answer, as if I had always known, I steer the boat in simply. The motor dying on the pebbles, cicadas taking up the hum, dropped in the silence. Anger and tenderness, myself. And now I can believe they breathe in me as angels, not polarities. Anger and tenderness, the spider's genius to spin and weave in the same action from her own body anywhere, even from a broken web. The cabin in the stand of pines is still for sale, I know this. Know the print of the last foot, the hand that slammed and locked that door then stopped to wreathe the rain-smashed clematis back on the trellis for no one's sake except its own. I know the chart nailed to the wallboards, the icy kettle squatting on the burner, the hands that hammered in those nails, emptied that kettle one last time, are these same two hands, and they have caught the baby leaping from between trembling legs, and they have worked the vacuum aspirator and stoked the sweated temples, and steered the boat here through this hot, misblotted sunlight, critical light, imperceptibly, scalding the skin these hands will also salve. We heard uh, the Soledad poem from, uh, from, I think, the 70s? The 90s. Hmm? The 90s. 90s? And... Um, this is a take on solitude from the very much younger Adrian Rich um, from her first collection, Stepping Backward. Goodbye to you whom I shall see tomorrow, next year, and when I'm 50. Still, goodbye. This is the leave we never really take. If you were dead or gone to live in China, the, the event might draw your stature in my mind. I should be forced to look upon you whole, the way we look upon the things we lose. We see each other daily and in segments. Parting might make us meet anew and tire. You asked me once, and I could give no answer, how far dare we throw off the daily ruse, official treacheries of face and name, have out our true identity? I could hazard an answer now if you were asking still. We are a small and lonely human race, showing no sign of mastering solitude out on this stony planet that we farm. The most that we can do for one another is let our blunders and our blind mischances argue a certain brusque, abrupt compassion. We might as well be truthful. I should say they're luckiest who know they're not unique. But only art or common interchange can teach that kindest truth, and even art can only hint at what disturbed a Melville or calmed a Mahler's frenzy. You and I still look from separate windows every morning upon the same white daylight on the square. And when we come into each other's rooms once in a while, encumbered and self-conscious, we hover awkwardly about the threshold and usually regret the visit later. Perhaps the harshest fact is only lovers, and once in a while, too, with the grace of lovers, 
unlearn that clumsiness of rare intrusion and let each other freely come and go. Most of us shut too quickly into cupboards, the margin-scribbled books, the dried geranium, the penny horoscope, letters never mailed. The door may be open, but the room is altered, not the same room we look from night and day. It takes a late and slowly blooming wisdom to learn that those we marked infallible are tragicomic stumblers like ourselves. The knowledge breeds reserve. We walk on tiptoe, demanding more than we know how to render. Two-edged discovery hunts us finally down. The human act will make us real again, and then perhaps we come to know each other. Let us return to imperfections school no longer wandering after Plato's ghost, seeking the garden where all fruit is flawless, we must at last renounce that ultimate blue and take a walk in other kinds of weather. The sourest apple makes its wry announcement that imperfection has a certain tang. Maybe we should, shouldn't turn our pockets out to the last crumb or lingering bit of fluff, but all we can confess of what we are has in it the defeat of isolation. If not our own, then someone's anyway. So I come back to saying this goodbye, a sort of ceremony of my own, this stepping backward for another glance. Perhaps you'll say we need no ceremony because we know each other, crack and flaw, like two irregular stones that fit together. Yet still, goodbye, because we live by inches and only sometimes see the full dimension. Your stature's one I want to memorize, your whole level of being, to impose on any other comers, man or woman. I'd ask them that they carry what they are with your particular bearing, as you wear the flaws that make you both yourself and human. Like, like John, I discovered Adrienne Rich when I was young, and she was my first feminist poet. And I, uh, I really appreciated the way that she, and still do, the way that she wrote about women, so many different ways. And I love the images that she uses in this poem about love. It's called Translations. You show me the poems of some woman my age or younger, translated from your language. Certain words occur, enemy, oven, sorrow. Enough to let me know she's a woman of my time, obsessed with love, our subject. We've trained it like ivy to our walls, baked it like bread in our ovens, worn it like lead on our ankles, watched it through binoculars as if it were a helicopter bringing food to our famine, or the satellite of a hostile power. I begin to see that woman doing things, Stirring rice, ironing a skirt, typing a manuscript until dawn, trying to make a call from a phone booth. The phone rings unanswered in a man's bedroom. She hears him telling someone else, never mind, she'll get tired. Hears him telling her story to her sister, who becomes her enemy and will, in her own time, light her way to sorrow, ignorant of the fact that this way of grief is shared unnecessary, and political. So I want to thank you all for coming here today and sharing a little bit of uh, Adrian's life and work and going back out into the world. So there's, this is one last piece by her. Thank you all. I know you are reading this poem late before leaving your office of the one intense yellow lamp spot and the darkening window, in the lassitude of a building faded to quiet long after rush hour. I know you are reading this poem, standing up in a bookstore far from the ocean on a gray day of early spring, faint flakes driven around, across the plains, enormous spaces around you. I know you are reading this poem in a room where too much has happened for you to bear, where the bedclothes lie in stagnant coils on the bed and the open valise speaks of flight, but you cannot leave yet. 
I know you are reading this poem as the underground train loses momentum and before running up the stairs toward a new kind of love your life has never allowed. I know you are reading this poem by the light of the television screen where soundless images jerk and slide while you wait for the newscast from the Intifada. I know you are reading this poem in a waiting room of eyes met and unmeeting of identity with strangers. I know you are reading this poem by fluorescent light in the boredom and fatigue of the young who are counted out, count themselves out at too early an age. I know you are reading this poem through your failing sight the thick lens enlarging these letters beyond all meaning, yet you read on because even the alphabet is precious. I know you are reading this poem as you pace beside the stove, warming milk, a crying child on your shoulder, a book in your hand, because life is short and you too are thirsty. I know you are reading this poem which is not in your language, guessing at some words while others keep you reading, and I want to know which words they are. I know you are reading this poem listening for something torn between bitterness and hope, turning back once again to the task you cannot refuse. I know you are reading this poem because there is nothing else left to read there where you have landed, stripped as you are.